Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Jelena Jurinovic about her new book, The Politics of Memory of the Second World War in Contemporary Serbia, Collaboration, Resistance and Retribution, which was published by Routledge in 2020. Welcome, Jelena. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me here. Dr. Jurinovic holds a PhD in Modern and Contemporary History from Justus Liebig University in Gießen, Germany. Her research focuses on the history and politics of the memory of the Second World War in Yugoslavia and the post-Yugoslav space, as well as reinterpretations of the Chetnik movement in Serbia. She was a visiting research fellow at the Moore Institute in Galway, at the Center for Southeast European Studies at the University of Graz, and at the Institute of Culture and Memory Studies in the Slovenian Academy of Sciences and Arts. She is currently scientific coordinator for the research platform Transformations and Eastern Europe at the University of Vienna. So Jelena, can you tell our listeners what motivated you to write this book? How did you become interested in this topic? The period when I was being politically socialized and kind of becoming aware of phenomena in society in Serbia, such as memory politics. So we are talking about the first decade after the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in 2000. That was also the period of the most radical revision of the Second World War and socialist Yugoslavia. And kind of, it was part of um, political socialization, also part of my college assignments where I wrote about this topic. And already when I was applying for my master's degree at uh, Central European University, we were supposed to submit a paper and a research proposal. And it was, there was no dilemma. This was uh, the topic to go with historical revisionism about the Second World War. So I would say the main reason is Precisely this, that when I was starting getting interested in history and in memory politics, in anti-fascism, that was also precisely the time when these things were being radically revised in Serbia. So it was a time of great contention with regard to historical interpretations. And so it was kind of like unavoidable in a way that in some capacity you'd be drawn to this as a historian. Yes, yes. And uh, I was actually doing my BA in journalism at the time. But it was, it was, uh, there was a, a law on veterans. Changes were passed that equalized the, the communist led partisans and the Chetniks. And I was just kind of shocked that it's possible to just uh, come up with a law and say, okay, so these guys are now anti fascists from today on, and they all have same veteran rights and benefits. So, uh, of course, this was something that we actually talked about a lot as well, because it was quite a prominent uh, discussion in Serbia at the time. Yeah, I found that to be striking um, when reading about it in subsequent chapters of your book. And of course, we'll return to that. For now, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what you see as the primary argument or arguments of this book. 
The central question that the book asks is how memory politics works. And uh, I illuminate its dynamics, multiple levels, and their interactions on the example of the reinterpretation of the Second World War collaboration and resistance, as well as post-war retribution in post-socialist Serbia. For this question, to answer the questions how how memory politics works in general, I take the case study of the Chetniks or the Yugoslav army in the homeland because of their central position in official memory politics and the one coming from below, but also because of the already mentioned radical revision of them into victims of communism and anti-fascist movement. And so if you were going to define memory politics for us, how would you define that? Well, as the word says, I guess, by memory politics, we mean simply all discourses and acts where interpretation of history is used for political purposes. And as the field of memory studies often focuses on cultural representations rather than on the political nature of memory, the political aspect becomes really important to emphasize for me, because memory politics is always a political process where history is engaged. Yeah, and you also use the term memory work. So could you talk a little bit about that as well, how these two terms relate memory politics and memory work? Memory work uh, could be understood also as um, an aspect of memory politics. And uh, this is the term brilliantly explained by sociologist Brian Conway, who actually works on Northern Ireland and uh, memory in Derry. And... um, The concept places emphasis on the human effort and agency behind it, behind memory, behind memory politics, because I think that we often forget that it is people who remember and that it is people who are behind memory politics and discourses about the past. So this concept of memory work kind of grounds these large-scale concepts such as memory politics and memory cultures. It grounds it uh, in a way. And... um, What this concept also really illuminates is the multi-level nature of memory work, as Conway actually defines it, from individual and small group group levels, such as family, to large-scale social and institutional um, memory work levels. So it is really helpful in understanding dynamics, interactions, and competitions and contested issues that are related to memory politics. If we look at this particular concrete agency and work behind it. Right. And so this is an intentional and active type of practice as opposed to just kind of recollecting, right? It's, it's, it involves intentional forms of commemoration or memory practices. Yeah. And also at this very basic small group level, of course, it can also entail some everyday practices, including preserving photographs. Yeah, and um, on the topic, actually, of photographs and sources in general, can you talk a little bit about the sources you used for this book? I used a variety, first, of uh, all uh, of Britain's sources, including various state papers pertaining to official memory politics. And that includes legislation, parliament transcripts, programs of political parties and their publications, then also court transcripts of rehabilitation cases and so on. And many of these are actually publicly available. So this is because we are dealing with a very recent past with the last two or three decades. They are not in archives. And some of these sources also has to be requested directly from 
individual institutions or courts, which is a long process where one never knows when the answer or documents might arrive. Of course, uh, I also analyzed uh, media discourses. And another important aspect of the research behind this book is that I really made use of the contemporary nature of the research subject, that it's still ongoing, that participants are there. So I conducted interviews with relevant actors. I attended and observed commemorations and other events and gatherings. And here, what we will talk about probably later, I was really interested predominantly in the anti-communist memory community, this sphere where commemorations of victims of communism and defeated Second World War forces take place and where memorials are, for example, being built. And um, I refer to them, which is probably important to say right away at the beginning, because I will probably be mentioning them, that I refer to them and their activities as anti-communist memory work because of the unifying role of anti-communism in these communities. So yes, I conducted most of my interviews were with uh, members of these communities and some with some state actors and historians as well. And your oral histories were mainly in Serbia? Only in Serbia, yes. Okay. I can imagine that it was also challenging because as it is an ongoing project, right? Memory work is ongoing, and especially this topic that, you know, at some point, it's like you have to stop, right? But in a way, you don't want to, because, you know, there are more and more types of sources coming out about this and more discussion. And as you said earlier, you finished your book quite quickly, and maybe it was a relief in a way to do so, because otherwise, I could see this project just going on and on and on, right? You keep wanting to add to it as new sources uh, emerge. Of course. And I wanted to draw a line and I did kind of draw the line in 2015 with the end of rehabilitation of Dragoljub Mihailović, the leader of the Chetnik movement. But it was still, when the book was being finalized with some new things going on, it was really hard to complete it and to submit the manuscript knowing that there are all of these things happening, still happening and changing, and I don't refer to them in the book. Right. You refer to them, though, and obviously that talks and um, other types of you know, panels and these discussions that are ongoing about this. So it's, it's great you can still reference it because it comes so close to the present day. Okay, so let's move on to discussing um, some of the thematic chapters. And so in Chapter 3, you examine the history of the memory of the Second World War from the post-war period to the end of the 80s. And I thought before broaching this topic... Perhaps you can give our listeners some background uh, on the Second World War in Yugoslavia. Of course, it's very complex um, and there's lots of players involved, but just to kind of give them a foundation so they can understand that and then connecting that with the establishment of social uh, Yugoslavia and then kind of then what happens to that discourse uh, about the Second World War under Tito. Yeah, I will try to summarize it as shortly as it gets. Um, so after the Axis attack in April 1941, which is when the Second World War started for Yugoslavia, the territory of the interwar kingdom was dismembered into some very complex variety of occupied annex or kind of independent areas with different Axis powers and also various domestic collaborators across the whole country. When it comes to Serbia, the subject of, of my work, uh, it came under the direct military control 
of the German forces. And they had, of course, as in many other countries across Europe, they had the support of the appointed domestic government. And one of the most important tasks of the collaborationist administration in Serbia was to maintain order. So they were very repressive once the organized uprising broke out in summer 1941. The partisans, talking about the organized uprising, uh, we have to talk about the partisans, or as they were officially termed, the People's Liberation Movement. They were a communist-led resistance movement, led by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, and they were spread really throughout whole Yugoslavia. They did not represent, as opposed to all other actors we have at that time, in Yugoslavia, they did not represent some specific ethnic, nationalist, or religious interests. And their resistance struggle during the Second World War ended with victory, and it was also a parallel socialist revolution. And then here we have the Chetniks, the Yugoslav army, the homeland officially, that's, who represent the main subject of my book. They are a very interesting case. They had Allied support until 1943, actually, but they also at the same time engaged in collaboration and atrocities against civilians. And they were what is really interesting and what makes them such a such an easy object of revision is that they were initially and nominally a resistance movement, but they dedicated most of their efforts to fighting the partisans already from the autumn 1941. And eventually they were abandoned by the allies, they were defeated by the partisans, and they were considered war criminals and collaborators in socialist Yugoslavia. And so then, what type of discourse emerges under Tito about the Second World War? What what would people have learned in schools, um, and what type of commemorative practices would have characterized Yugoslavia, socialist Yugoslavia, during his tenure? The memory culture of socialist Yugoslavia was based on the so-called partisan myth. And it was about the People's Liberation War that represented the source of legitimacy for the regime, but also the birthplace of socialist Yugoslavia that was established during the war. So the official narrative in Yugoslavia was heroic. It celebrated the partisan. It celebrated the struggle of all Yugoslav people together against occupation and collaborators. And it also celebrated the revolution. On the other hand, we had this this very broad commemoration of the victims of fascism, similar to many other countries across Central and Eastern Europe, without specificities of the Holocaust, Roma genocide, and so on. And when it comes to the enemies of the partisans, so various domestic collaborators, as they were termed, The official discourses did not really make any difference between them, meaning that, for example, the Chetniks were seen as the Serbian counterpart to the Croatian Ustasha movement, and they were all blamed for causing suffering to the Yugoslav people and for obstructing the partisans' struggle. And what is also important here is that the Second World War in Yugoslavia was also a civil war, multi-sided civil war. and. This was also a big aspect of the wartime experience for many people. So it was ethnically neutralized after the war in the sense that all Yugoslav people had their collaborators and traitors, and then there were partisans in the official narrative who stood opposed 
as all Yugoslav and only, the only consistent resistance movement. And this was the way of the Yugoslav authorities to deal with the legacies of the war that were potentially divisive in a multi-ethnic state. And you also note some of the counter-narratives or some of the narratives about the war that existed under the surface, but that could not be too publicly commemorated. So could you maybe talk about those as well? So as I said, there was this hegemony of the partisan myth in the Yugoslav society. But the Yugoslav memory culture cannot be reduced to the dichotomy of the imposed partisan myth from above and then repressed or forbidden memory as we often talk about the period of state socialism. Uh, From my sources and work of some other people, such as Max Bergholz, we can see that people really interacted in a different ways uh, with the official frameworks of memory. And we also here have to remember that many Yugoslav people had a direct war experience, and many of them fought in the partisans. Many of them lost family members who fought in the partisans. And because of that, many of them, many of them did actively participate in official memory work because it spoke to them, it corresponded to their experience. And instead of this dichotomy of complying with or rejecting the official narratives and practices, we can see that in the Yugoslav case, people organized various grassroots commemorative initiatives. They also appropriated official narratives for various purposes. Many people were simply indifferent, but there were also cases where people deliberately neglected or even destroyed partisan memorials. And when it comes to the memory of collaboration, it's public commemoration of collaborators of defeated Second World War forces existed in emigration and was completely public. But it was also actually present in Yugoslavia. There are many examples of, for example, families mourning their dead, commemorating them at some kind of small scale level, or even making memorials. And there are some examples where people added names of, for example, killed Chetniks to partisan memorials. And this is something that still needs research, because I think uh, this hasn't been researched enough, and we don't have really good work that goes into some local um, context and looks at these different commemorations and whether they faced consequences at all. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating, um, thinking of these types of resistance to the dominant discourse by adding those names, especially in small places, right, where people are going to not be, well, they might be observed by neighbors, who knows, but they might also be insulated to some degree. Let's move on to um, then the 80s. So what happens to discourses about the war, the Second World War, after the death of Tito, and then especially in the early 1990s? After Tito's death in 1980, Yugoslavia went through a decade of all-encompassing general crises that included also the crisis of regime's legitimacy. And this was the time when nationalism started becoming more present in the public, and when the narratives that questioned the official war memory, but also the existence of the Yugoslav state, um, started being more and more prominent in the public sphere. And they were expressed, promoted, and discussed, and written about more, more than ever before, probably. 
In the case of Serbia, in addition to the narratives of Serbian victimhood and their sacrifice in the partisan movement that started becoming prominent, the reinterpretation of the nature of the Second World War and its main actors, completely opposed to the dominant partisan myth, were everywhere simply. And so-called dark sides of the partisans' revolution were increasingly published, and the discourse of victims of communism that became really, really important later uh, started forming towards the end of this decade. And this is also the time when the narrative about the Chetniks as a Serbian resistance movement actually enters the public sphere and even history writing. And so then how does that influence subsequent uh, wars in the former Yugoslavia? What is really interesting is that um, during the rule of Slobodan Milosevic in the 90s and the wars, the regime actually promoted itself as some kind of successor of Yugoslavia and as the keeper of the legacies of the People's Liberation War. Now, knowing this, what was happening during the 90s, this is really interesting. And the partisan struggle, of course, wasn't celebrated in the same way as during Yugoslavia. It was depoliticized. It was also ethnicized as purely Serbian. And it was observed through the lens of victimhood and heroism of the Serbian nation. So quite actually similar to what's going on in Serbia at the moment. So in this way, the regime could represent itself as some kind of defender against fascism, and fascism became a metaphor for all other Yugoslav people who had some kind of secessionist claims, particularly Croatia. And when the Chetnik revival emerged in the early 90s and various commemorations as well among the political opposition, the state actually did not endorse it, but they also didn't ban it. They simply tolerated uh, this because it kind of suited the general general. Um, climate of Serbian ethno-nationalism at the time. And I think when we talk about the 90s as well, this is also, if we, if we talk about the historical perspective on memory politics and historical development of dominant narratives, the 90s are the time when various key actors emerged, such as the Serbian Orthodox Church and the anti-communist politics of memory became quite well spread across Serbia. The community of memory celebrating Chetniks also emerged in this period. And another crucial moment is uh, the forming of political parties in the early 90s, because this was the opposition to Milosevic that was fiercely anti-communist, that saw Milosevic as a communist, and that organized and attended all commemorations. And it was them who came to power in 2000. So. After they came to power in 2000, anti-communism of the 90s, of this opposition sphere, became the state policy, evident in many spheres, including economy, education, and healthcare, and what I deal with, memory politics as well. So then you first see the emergence of this revival of the Chetnik memory, and then um, the subsequent anti-communist movement among, as you said, opposition groups. And who else is involved in this process? So you, you mentioned the Serbian Orthodox Church. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of the church, as well as other figures, maybe intellectuals in the 90s in particular, who are involved in this process. The church, the Serbian Orthodox Church became 
important in the late 80s and early 90s uh, because religious memorial services for victims of communism became a common commemorative practice of anti-communist memory communities in Serbia. And this is the case today. This tendency continued as the dominant practice. And the support of the Serbian Orthodox Church involves several forms. This is not only about the memorial services. The clergy, very often the very prominent one, uh, they attend commemorations. They perform these religious services for the dead. They give blessings to memorials. But also the church provides space for memorials at, at its property. So if we look at memorials to defeated forces of the Second World War or victims of communism, they are often positioned in churchyards or cemeteries. And uh, at the same time, intellectuals were important already in the 80s when kind of the culture of remembrance about the Second World War started shifting more away from the partisan myth. And they were also active in the 90s. Uh, they, most of them from the Serbian Academy of Sciences and various historians, they were also members, very prominent members of the political parties, such as the Democratic Party that formed in 1990 and 1991. So then you mentioned also how after the fall of Milosevic, you have this rehabilitation, essentially this continued rehabilitation of the Chetniks and also a reconfiguration of collaboration among right the political elite and also, I guess, the intellectual elite. So could you talk a little bit about that and then how that plays out in terms of public spaces, uh, official holidays? That type of thing. After the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in 2000, uh, the official memory politics, the new one, was based on the anti-communist consensus among the political elites, who promoted the narrative of the end of the Second World War as the beginning of the communist occupation rather than liberation from fascism. And this discourse involved criminalization of the People's Liberation Movement, and through that also of socialist Yugoslavia, of course, and positive reinterpretation of the defeated forces such as the Chetniks. And one of the first goals was actually to demonize Yugoslavia and emphasize its negative nature, but also it started disappearing from the public sphere um, in the sense that street names and other names of institutions, schools, factories, and so on uh, were changed. However, and this will really be important when we talk about uh, memory work that comes from below, anti-communist memory work, we, we saw different official holidays being removed, we saw street names being removed, and so on, but they were not replaced with anything that commemorates defeated Second World War forces or victims of communism. So there is no official Memorial Day uh, commemorating victims of communism. The Serbian state does not officially commemorate any of the International Remembrance Days related to victims of communism and memory of communism. And uh, there is no memorial anywhere which has official state support Uh, that commemorates victims of communism. So kind of memory politics was visible in the public sphere in the sense of things disappearing from it, but there were no sudden uh, massive new street street names of uh, 
Dragoljub Mihailovic or some other prominent Chetnik leaders or something like that. All cases that exist are quite marginal. And the Chetniks emerge here for the Serbian nation state as a role model from the Second World War that's politically more appropriate for the post-socialist nation state and the partisans. And because of their very ambiguous nature, they could be constructed, the Chetniks could be constructed as both the national anti-fascist movement and victims of communism because of the post-war retribution and trials that they faced. And this, to place it a bit in the context beyond Serbia, uh, these couple of years or the first decade after the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic really reflected the general tendency in post-socialism where political elites since the early 90s usually tried to criminalize communism through various uh, state-sponsored memory projects of exhibitions, museums of crimes of communism, institutes of national memory and legislation. And so you see that in the Serbian context as well, because you mention uh, in this chapter, and I'm referring to chapter five here, you talk about uh, television series and then museum uh, representations, right? So museum exhibits. And then you also mention a law uh, that was passed in 2004, so the law on the rights of veterans, military invalids, and members of their families. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those things? Yeah, uh, the changes of the veteran law formally equalized the Chetniks and the partisans as two Serbian anti-fascist movements. To be more precise, they actually positioned the Chetniks, the law actually positioned the Chetniks as People's Liberation War veterans, literally. And they positioned them as, they named them the People's Liberation War veterans, although it was the People's Liberation Movement they fought against throughout the whole Second World War. So we can here see really the example of it, what happens when legislation tries to interpret history. Uh, However, if we look at the practical side of that veteran law, nothing actually happened. Uh, No single Chetnik or member of a family of a Chetnik veteran has received any benefits. The process was made so complicated, and it was actually made impossible eventually for them to get pensions and other benefits. But the importance of the veteran law of equalizing the Chetniks and the partisans in this way is precisely that it officially equalized them. It made this decades-long process of their equalization and interpretation of the Chetnik movement as anti-fascist official. So basically, it was for the purpose of political legitimacy or political expediency. It wasn't for everyday individuals, ordinary individuals, to benefit by being acknowledged in this fashion. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, I'd like to talk about the fact-finding commissions that you discuss in Chapter 6 and the role they play in creating or at least attempting to create alternative narratives of the Second World War, and then how the media covers what these fact-finding commissions do. In 2009, the Serbian government established two fact-finding commissions dealing with the graves of the post-war period. And uh, the central position of the Chetniks that I argue throughout the book in dominant memory politics is evident precisely here in the fact that the first commission established had only one task, to find more information about the circumstances of Mihailovic's execution 
with the ultimate goal of finding his remains. And then a few months later, the government also established the State Commission for Secret Graves, to say it shortly, the name is quite longer, with a broader scope of locating and marking all graves of people who were executed in after the liberation of Belgrade in 1944 in the territory of Serbia. Both commissions can be considered a failure in practical terms. They didn't find Mihailovic's grave, and no post-war grave in Serbia has been exhumated or marked. However, and, um, could you actually, sorry, tell our listeners who Mihailovic was? Dragoljub Draža Mihailovic was the commander and the leader of the Yugoslav army in the homeland of the Chetnik movement. And uh, if I didn't mention it at the beginning, he was put to a public trial in 1946 and executed. Great, thanks. Well, I think uh, when we talk about uh, the role of media representations, this is where these fact-finding commissions become really important. They created a constant presence, a constant present of the stories of victimhood under communism in the public through really sensationalist media reports that follow them. And here I will just maybe provide one example that uh, journalists were also, some of them personally interested in following these topics and they were following the commissions everywhere. And the commission members helped and fostered this uh, sensationalist reporting by giving hints that they are going to find something very important. So there have been a couple of uh, cases of members of the Mihailovic Commission saying that they discovered various secret archives in London, in Moscow, in suburbs of Belgrade, and that they are traveling there to get those papers. And media was reporting about it as if it felt as if we didn't know anything about the Second World War by then, as if we never had archives, as if we don't have any kind of evidence about the Second World War, because they went to London to archives, to national archives. And I mean, there is nothing there that historians haven't used, of course. And at some point, they thought that they found a mass grave containing also Mihailovic's remains in uh, Belgrade. And they were digging in this kind of amateur way on their own. There were some journalists who were digging with them. It was all very unprofessional. And... um, before getting the actual, actual official results from the Forensic Institute, they published that it was Mihailovic and talked about it. The greatest Serbian mystery was solved, and it turned out that uh, bones were cow bones and not even human. <laughs> so uh, this, I think, is a great example of the informal, frivolous way uh, many of these memory politics uh, mechanisms work. And also just very sensationalized, right? To yeah, draw people's yeah. attention. And, but if you have a year of investigations looking for a grave of someone and daily reports talking about this person being not only sentenced to death, not only executed, but also deprived of the right to have a grave, it really does contribute to the spread of the narrative of victimhood among people. Sure, and this idea of communist repression, right? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's talk about uh, the role of non-state actors in this anti-communist memory work. So that's what you focus on in Chapter 7. As I said, uh, there are no official memorials, memorial days 
street names or official commemorations dedicated to victims of communism. And this is crucial for understanding the motivations and frustrations of the anti-communist memory community that comes from below. So during the 90s, they were opposed to Slobodan Milosevic. And similarly to the political opposition and post-2000 political elites, they saw his fall as the long-awaited end of communist rule in Serbia. And then this lack of commemorations and the symbolic nature of the existing mechanisms of dealing with the communist past, so no pensions, no real benefits, no real memorials, and so on, this has pushed various actors to simply take the matter of memory into their own hands. And um, while they operate from below, they, of course, aspire to climb up the memory hierarchy and somehow influence official politics of memory. And because of the informal nature of official memory politics that I mentioned when it comes to these fact-finding commissions, for example, there are many overlaps between different levels of memory work. And these actors from the anti-communist memory community, they actually became active in institutional memory work. So when it comes to the Commission for Secret Graves, their work successfully mobilized many of these actors. They promoted it, they worked there as volunteers, they were digging, they were sponsoring it, and so on. And it is within this community that uh, commemorations take place. They publish a lot, they do advocacy, and they also seek recognition in a form of memorial because they see, all my informants see a memorial dedicated to all victims of communism in the center of Belgrade as the most important goal of all of the things they do. And um, to kind of summarize it, this community emerged in the 90, late 1980s and early 90s, and it encompasses a couple of associations of victims and descendants of those executed, but also various anti-communist and right-wing NGOs, historians and other intellectuals, many of them active since the, since the 80s, and various monarchist groups and political parties. With what we already mentioned, uh, the official support of the church and the royal family of Karadjordjevic. And in addition to that, there are various groups that are associated specifically with the Chetnik movement that, uh, that are engaging regularly in various commemorative practices in this community. Right. And one of those was, you mentioned the hike to Ravna Gora. What was, what was that like? I did go to Ravnagora when there is no event happening um, to see how this central site of memory for Chetniks looks like when there is no big festival going on. And um, this is a completely abandoned place, of course. Uh, no one goes there uh, beyond those couple of days in May when they have a really big festival going on. And um, it is... Interesting, however, that they have an exhibition that was financed to, through a pro, state-funded pro, project that uh, commemorated the 9th of May as the victory against fascism. And they, they did a big exhibition about the Chetniks uh, from these funds. And where, where do they get funding from? Well, when it comes to Ravnagora, memorial complex this was um, and many other 
various memorials that exist to Dragoljub Mihailović, for example, um, the political emigration, the Chetnik emigration from the US, UK, and so on, um, financed a lot of uh, these things. So, for example, there are some memorial churches. There's a memorial church on Ravnagora. There are statues of Dragoljub Mihailović. They have been mostly funded from abroad. Okay, interesting. And um, I'm guessing from mainly elderly communities abroad. Yeah, I think um, I uh, did a bit of research about um, political emigration and their memory practices. Uh, it is the descendants of Chetniks that also continue and preserve these various practices, including celebrations of Mihailovich's uh, birthdays or commemorating his uh, date of death and so on. Yeah, it's that's a whole another topic, right? A fascinating yeah, topic yeah. Of, of exploration. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the judicial rehabilitations and the purpose of them. So that's one of the things you um, explore in Chapter 8. Legal or judicial rehabilitation, just like the fact-finding commissions, is a great example of the use of transitional justice mechanisms for the purposes of rewriting history rather than correcting some kind of historical injustice. So normally, the mechanism of judicial rehabilitation seeks to accommodate some victims of unfair trials by revising court processes or through declarations collectively rehabilitating victims of political persecution and repression. In the case of Serbia, the legislation that was passed in 2006 and 2011 enables actually rehabilitation of the Axis collaborators, as well as forces who bear responsibility for mass atrocities during the Second World War. The only criterion that makes it possible is that some political and ideological grounds not defined in legislation also played some kind of role in later judicial or extrajudicial punishment of these people. So these laws, fact-finding commissions, and some other efforts are a perfect example of some sort of pseudo-transitional justice that focuses on communism, but which is very important for the Serbian context. Uh, it neglects the 90s wars as the more urgent past that should probably be dealt with through transi transitional justice. So it's a way of deflecting energy away from the conflict in the 90s, from the war in the 90s, essentially, by going back to an earlier time and focusing people's energies on that. Yes, and there have been no similar efforts related to the 90s wars and their victims at all. But even with this focus on the Second World War in an effort to, in part, deflect attention away from the 1990s, you see uh, contestation, right? So you argue that... Uh, despite the fact that uh, the state and other institutions have worked to reinterpret and essentially rewrite Serbia's role uh, during the Second World War, there's been some pushback. And so in Chapter 9, uh, your final chapter, you discuss the rehabilitation of Mihailovic in 2015, and you examine the contestation surrounding the trial and ultimately the verdict. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about who supported Mihailovic's rehabilitation and celebrated after the verdict, and who opposed it and protested once the verdict was announced. This case of rehabilitation of Dragoljub Mihailovic was so important. It involved, as you mentioned, 
protests in front of the court that were going on for years during the process. Many people opposed it, but also many people, of course, supported it. What was really important, the side in favor of his rehabilitation was actually dominating the process because the legislation actually doesn't allow people who oppose it to take part. So it was only after initiative of various NGOs and partisan veteran associations that um, one critical historian was included in the process. So this rehabilitation process, when it ended, it did not lead to compensation for the family of Mihailovic. It did not resonate somehow further in culture of remembrance through some kind of memorial or official holiday and so on. But it is, as I said, immensely important because it brought the image of Mihailovic as an innocent victim of communism to the forefront to, of public and media discourses. And the positive court decision also made the image of Mihailovic as a victim official. And the court emphasized, the court counsel and the judge emphasized throughout the process that the case was only about the question whether Mihailovic had been sentenced and executed because of some ideological reasons, because that should be, in theory, the point of rehabilitation. But the Second World War was the central and almost only theme of court hearings, including the discussions, endless discussions on the nature of the Chetnik movement, their collaboration and crimes. And this focus on the wartime context made this court case even more relevant because it it was really not about correcting some kind of injustice as a rehabilitation process should be, but it was about evaluating the Second World War and its actors in the courtroom. And we can see this particular rehabilitation case as the culmination of the long process of political rehabilitation of the Chetniks and legal confirmation of their positive image, simply. Yeah, and what I found really fascinating about the court case is that they had uh, English, right, British veterans coming in and testifying, um, and then also there was reference to the fact that Mihailovic loved French literature, so that is a basis of his good character. Yes, and uh, there were many, many strange things in that. So there were historians, uh, revisionist historians, who kind of testified about the nature of the Chetnik movement and so on. And they were presented with a certain document ordered by Mihailovic, which they deemed fake and forged by the communist authorities. And they are historians like you and me. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't have any kind of expertise to evaluate a document, whether it's um, authentic And I'm pretty sure that they also don't have it. So this was kind of another example of the completely amateur nature of all this, where people just uh, take a paper and say, yeah, this was uh, made fake uh, by the communists. Like, I I still don't understand that part, what was exactly the evidence. Although there were then other historians and researchers who proved that it was a real document and that... uh, It wasn't fake, which is also something I don't really understand. But uh, yes, they were the this particular 
anecdote of Mihailovich loving French literature also appeared in history textbooks for primary and high schools in early 2000s for some reason. And this is really important also to show him as cultured officer of the Yugoslav king's army as opposed to the partisans who are always depicted as being wild and not not educated and violent and so on. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the issue of textbooks because I was going to ask you about that. Would you say then, and this is pretty commonplace in terms of how Mihailovich and the Chetniks are represented in in school manuals, in public exhibitions, etc.? Yes, and gender also plays an important role there for differentiating between the two movements because the Chetniks, uh, there were no women combatants in the Chetniks. There are only a few examples, individual examples. While in the Partisans, more than 100,000 women actually fought in the Partisans. And this is also used to differentiate, to show uh, the Chetniks, their wives of Chetnik soldiers were cooking or being nurses and helping and doing what's supposed to be done while in the partisans, everyone was transgressing gender roles and this was not good. I mean, that's fascinating. So then the Chetnik movement also becomes a means by which you promote a more traditional gender ideology today. Of course. It's fascinating. So many layers. Um, Okay, so as a closing question, I thought maybe you could just briefly discuss how the Second World War is being memorialized in other parts of the former Yugoslavia. We can say that the dominant discourses across the post-Yugoslav space are anti-communist, and the overall problem is the revival and reinterpretation of the collaborators in Croatia, in Slovenia, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, in Montenegro, similarly to Serbia. Of course, I think this is, again, that we are not only talking about these revisionist uh, tendencies, there is also a parallel memory culture that honors the People's Liberation War across the post-Yugoslav space. It is either politically motivated, but also there is memory within families um, by those whose ancestors were partisans, for example. And overall, to really summarize it, the emancipatory and positive legacies of the partisans and socialist Yugoslavia are either denied or downplayed in dominant discourses across the region because they simply don't fit the current nation states and their neoliberal politics. And is there any pushback in terms of you know representing um, that legacy? Because I know there is still some Yugo nostalgia, as it's termed. Is there any pushback on a kind of ordinary, everyday level? Yes, yes, of course. Of course. And I didn't uh, focus on this um, in my book because I looked at the dominant discourses and how they work also at the bottom-up level. But of course, there is, um, as I said, across the region, there are various groups, spheres, cultural, political, or of any kind that really celebrate um, the Yugoslav legacies, the partisans, and so on. There are commemorations of various larger battles. There are alternative commemorations to the revisionist ones. And there are many communities and groups that preserve uh, the memory of the People's Liberation War, similar to the narrative in socialist Yugoslavia. Yeah, and I imagine it's tough when you talk about institutions that are state-funded, like museums, because depending on 
the political ideology and intents of the leadership, a particular version of the past is going to be represented or to be supported and contested narratives are not going to find a place. And I'm thinking, of course, of Poland right now. So maybe you could just in a minute or two talk about that, some of the challenges um, museums face in Serbia and the region in trying to present a more complex narrative of the Second World War. The museums are generally underfunded, and um, I found it really interesting. I went to several museums, publicly funded museums across Serbia, and saw that many of them kept their permanent exhibition about the People's Liberation War as it was during Yugoslavia. And then, because of the lack of funding to actually make it House of Terror style, they just kind of added the new narratives to it. So you go through the whole museum, the Museum of Military History or the Military Museum in Belgrade is a perfect example where the whole museum depicts also modern history as history of class struggle. And at some point, like because it, I, I'm not sure, but I think the exhibition was uh, opened in the 60s, so you can see that these panels are slightly yellow, they are old. And then at some random points when you come to the to the 20th century, you see these new white panels just squeezed in between some things where they added the Chetniks, where they added the positive image of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. And then at the end, which is the case in many of these uh, museums in various cities across Serbia, at the end they added the 90s wars even as a, to create some kind of continuity, but a really confusing narrative because they didn't actually change the original exhibition. So essentially, there's a memory culture of the memory culture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, your research with us. I really enjoyed your book. And I thought we could just close by having you discuss briefly what your new, your current project is about. My current project, uh, largely influenced by the pandemic, explores the interplay of right-wing populism and memory politics and seeks to understand some specific, specific features of populist memory politics. My actual project that is impossible uh, to conduct due to travel restrictions and other issues related to the pandemic looks at the traveling memory of the anti-imperialist struggle in relation to solidarity networks during the Cold War. And I'm here particularly interested in the export of the Yugoslav revolution to the non-aligned world, the veterans agency in this, and how the Yugoslav actors narrated the People's Liberation War in anti-imperialist terms to fit the decolonization context. Well, they're both uh, fascinating and uh, timely projects. And so it's kind of exciting. You, can, you have two, right? You already have a, a second one lined up. <laughs> It's the first one, but it became the second one because uh, of uh, because uh, we simply cannot uh, go to archives at the moment. I'm 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 in the same situation, so my sympathies are with you. Okay, well, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me. It was a fascinating discussion, and I wish you the best of luck for when the archives open up and you can continue conducting your research. But in the meantime, I look forward to reading your uh, research on populist movements. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was really great. 